I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. Is the coronation going to plan? Will King Charles's reign be overshadowed by the Duke and Duchess of Sussex? And are Brits still interested in the monarchy? To discuss, I'm joined by the esteemed historian and journalist Simon Heffer in his lovely garden in Essex. Thank you so much, Simon, for joining us. Very nice to see you. The historian David Starkey says that the coronation is going all wrong. He says that the monarchy has not explained what the point and significance of the coronation is to the British public and it has become trivialised. Do you agree? With the highest regard for David Starkey, who's a brilliant historian of Tudor England, we don't know the coronation is going wrong because it hasn't happened yet. It may be if we were having this conversation in a couple of days' time, we'd be able to take a view. I don't know, David also was probably very young in 1953, I wasn't born. I don't know how far the late Queen or the royal family at the time or the government explained the coronation to the people of Britain then. I think everybody just simply intuitively knows that a coronation is the sacred moment where a king officially becomes king in the eyes of God. Don't forget that King Charles is also Supreme Governor of the Church of England, Defender of the Faith, and this is the moment of the established church, putting its hand on his shoulder, metaphorically and literally, and saying, you are now king. And I think people know that. I think people know that it's the rite of passage, it's the ceremonial induction. We we have many republics around the world that we take a close interest in. We've seen the inaugurations of endless American presidents over the years. I think we know that this is like an inauguration, if you have to have a comparison, and that once it's over, it's business as usual. Do you think that Charles has scrapped too much tradition in terms of the coronation ceremony? Now, we know that, for example, not as many people have to pledge homage to him, only I think William has to do that. And perhaps there'll be other tweaks where he's gone too far away from tradition. It used to be the case that the senior peer in each degree, so the, the oldest peerage in the, in, among the dukedoms, the marquisates, the earldoms, the viscounts, and the baronies, that they all had to go and, as you say, pay homage to him. And all that reflects is that since 1953, the hereditary peerage has been downgraded and diminished in the House of Lords. In 1953, every peer who sat in the House of Lords was a hereditary peer. Now there are only 92 of them, and they don't sit there by right, they sit there by election. 
So that's simply reflecting that. I think it's a pity that the people who run this country in large quantities aren't all going. It's a shame that there aren't all 800 sitting peers there, all 650 members of parliament, because they are the people who run the king's government and who run parliament. And we're told this is because of health and safety considerations. I think there were 8,000 people at the 1953 coronation, only just over 2,000, I think, at this one. And they've wanted to make room for what is now called a community leader. I'm not entirely clear what a community leader is, but there you are. We'll doubtless find out when we see who turns up. But I don't know that it's health and safety that's stopped this happening. They could have been erecting great stands in the Abbey for the last few months. I think it's that the King doesn't want to be seen to be extravagant and spending lots of money. And there will be, I'm sure, enough ritual and solemnity and colour in the coronation from the moment he gets in his coach to go to the Abbey to the moment he is actually crowned that will make people see that it's still a very traditional ceremony, one that dates back in this form and in that building to, I think, Christmas Day 1066 when William the Conqueror was crowned. Why are coronations significant? If you're just an ordinary Brit going about your life, why is this an important moment for the country? It's an important moment for the country because it is the official ceremony that marks the beginning of the reign. Although the moment the late Queen died last September, King Charles became king, this is, again, to use an American word, his inauguration. This is the moment when it's officially signed, sealed and delivered that he is the king. And that is a very formidable and important moment in our history. There hasn't been a coronation for 70 years. I wasn't alive. I'm getting on a bit. I wasn't alive when the last coronation happened. And I think something like five-sixths of the country wasn't alive when the last coronation happened. It is a big deal. And it's become very fashionable in advance of these royal events, such as jubilees in recent years, to say, oh, no one's going to turn up. I remember being told by the editor of a newspaper in 2002 that no one was going to turn up to the Golden Jubilee, and it was swamped. I'm absolutely sure the coronation is going to be a really key occasion. And all the opinion polls where people are saying, oh, no one's going to turn up, no one's going to be interested, they'd all rather go and wash their hair for the afternoon. It's not going to happen. People will be watching, people will take notice of it, and the thing is, people will remember it all their lives. The last coronation, as you say, was 70 years ago, 1953, obviously the late Queen's then coronation. So this was a big moment for Britain. Britain had just come out of the war, obviously, rationing, etc. People wanted to see this brilliant display. And also, I think it's the first coronation where you have television cameras and the whole world can enjoy this huge moment for Britain. Can you talk about maybe some of the similarities, differences between that coronation and now? I know, for example, that the procession is going to be a lot shorter for King Charles than it was for the Queen. Yes, and what's always amused me most in terms of anecdotes about the last coronation was that when the government were planning it in the winter of 1953, Churchill was horrified at the thought of it being televised. He said it may be watched by men in pubs with their hats on, (laughs) which was a wonderful line. No one wears hats anymore. I'm sure there'll be men in pubs and women in pubs watching it, and it's a great thing. I think the acceptance of television and broadcasting and the way that this will bring it into every home. Again, we've got stories from 53 of entire streets of people crowding into one room in one house because that was the house in the street that had the television. Everybody's got about five televisions now. So it'll be, there might not be the community spirit that there was last time, but it's going to get to many more people and many more people will watch it and absorb it and think about it. 
And it's a, it will be a moment to reflect what it means to live in a monarchy as opposed to a republic. And I think, again, that's something that the king has wanted to do with this coronation, that rather than make it a feast of extravagance and have 8,000 people there and have a really long procession, he just wants to make the point that the monarchy is a working institution in this country. It's not ornamental. It may have ornamental aspects to it, but it's a functioning act of duty and service to the country. And this, I think, is what he's trying to achieve in this coronation. I think they don't want people to turn around on Monday morning and say, God, that was an extremely extravagant splurge of money we haven't got. And of course, there's a very good comparison with 1953 in that we, we were eight years from a war that had virtually bankrupted us, had almost literally bankrupted us. And we're now <laughs> three years after a pandemic that's almost bankrupted us again and there is a shortage of money. It was regarded in 1953 as a great way of cheering people up. And of course, the war was much worse than the pandemic. Even if you didn't lose somebody in the war, it was the second such event in 25 years. And it was pretty horrible. People got bombed, their houses got destroyed. And there was a lot more reason to want to cheer people up than just after a very nasty disease going around. So we've talked about the last coronation, but there have obviously been many, many coronations in the last thousand years. Perhaps you can mention some of the most significant and important coronations in British history. It's really about English history to start with, because we only became Great Britain with the active unit in 1707. And the crowns, of course, had unified in 1603. I suppose we start with William the Conqueror on Christmas Day, 1066, in Westminster Abbey. His coronation signifies that he is in charge now, that the Normans are our masters uh, and they've taken us over. The next big coronation after 1485, Henry VII, when he wins the Battle of Bosworth, defeats Richard III, kills him, and the Tudors are on the throne and that reorientates the whole of English life, at least because his son, Henry VIII, decides to get rid of the Roman Catholic Church in England and found the Church of England in 1534. The next important coronation would be 1660. We'd had a civil war. We'd had a king with his head cut off in 1649. His son, Charles II, was restored to the throne. And so that signalled not just a new reign, but a whole new era. The arrival of a new dynasty is always important, and of course the Stuart dynasty ran out with the death of Queen Anne in 1714, and so the coronation, I think in 1715, of George I was hugely significant. The Hanoverians are on the throne, it's their descendants, the direct descendants that still rule, are still rulers, if you like. And the, the king didn't speak a word of English, he was a Germanophone. That's why we got a prime minister for the first time in 1721, because the king couldn't conduct his own government, he didn't speak the language. So that coronation was important because that was a real change of direction for the country. I suppose the only one since it's been really significant was 1902, oddly enough, which was Edward VII's coronation. He had been dismissed by his mother as a wastrel. Queen Victoria thought he was very much not up to the job. And she died in January 1901. His coronation was set for June 1902. And he spent those intervening 18 months really working hard to win the confidence of his people and of his ministers and had succeeded. And then hours before he was due to be crowned, he was stricken with appendicitis and the coronation had to be postponed. 
it happened six weeks later on the 9th of August and people looked at it to say, is the king actually up to it? Is he going to keel over directly after the coronation? And if you like, it was a way of him demonstrating that he was actually fit to do what he had to do. And he reigned for eight years. He didn't have a long life or a long reign. But he became very popular and gave his name to an era. And so that coronation was really a demonstration that he wasn't dead yet, if you like, and that he was capable of getting on with life. Some very important lessons for King Charles there. Do you think that ordinary Britons are still interested in the monarchy, still interested in the the coronation? And what about the international reception? I saw a poll saying that 40% of Germans are planning to watch the coronation live. I think it's very fashionable for some people in the media to say that the public aren't interested because that fits in with their own agenda. There are a lot of people who have a progressive, democratic, republican view. I think most people in this country are very glad we have a monarchy, not just because of the record of service of the late Queen, but because we've been through a very difficult time politically in the last two or three years, with, first of all, one government going down, losing 56 of its members resigning because they couldn't cope with the dishonesty and incompetence of the Prime Minister. And then a government that only lasted 48 days, I think, or 49 days because of the utter incompetence of that Prime Minister. And I think that people look at the monarchy as a form of not just continuity, which the constitutional historian Walter Badgett famously said it gave to the country, but also because it manages to convey a sense of stability and trust. And I think at the moment our politicians are probably less trusted than at any stage in my lifetime. And uh, having lived through the Wilson and Heath years, one saw politicians that really weren't very well trusted. I think now we're at a real nadir. And I think that's something or very important thing that makes people look at the monarchy and think that they're very lucky to have that central figure, that figurehead in our lives. And what about the international interest? Do you you think there is interest abroad? There's huge interest abroad. Our American cousins are immensely interested in our monarchy. I've always been impressed when I've been to America, and I've been there many times, to hear people talk about the Queen in the old days as if she was their Queen, um, which is rather flattering. Because as far as they were concerned, there was only one Queen, and it was her. Of course, there are several other Queens knocking around Europe. The Germans used to call her de Königin, the Queen, as if she was their Queen. Of course, she's... (laughs) largely of German descent. Her mother was Scottish, but on her, on her father's side, the royal house is largely German. And it's no surprise to hear that such large numbers of Germans are planning to watch the coronation. Of course, the king had a really successful trip to Germany in March and went down extraordinarily well, not just because he's actually very good at getting on with other heads of state and heads of government, but he does speak German and he capitalised on his interest in the country, his German heritage, his ability to speak the language. Made a tremendous impression there. That's something I find it very hard to imagine a Prime Minister doing, even if that Prime Minister spoke German. We live in an era of protest. I think recently we saw the grand national, national attempt to be stormed by these animal rights protesters, obviously Extinction Rebellion, disrupting all sorts of events. And these people, obviously we've got Republicans as well, Republican protesters. There may be some protests at the coronation. Are you worried about troublemakers? I'm not remotely worried about troublemakers. Look, there's always a few people who are against the established order. Going back to the Civil War, there were diggers and levellers and fifth monarchists. You know, there were people who didn't want any sort of terrestrial royalty to, to be in charge of them. 
and these people's apostolic descendants are still in this country today. We live in a free society, we live in a democracy. If people don't like the monarchy, they have a perfect right to say so. I heard on the BBC the other day extensive interviews with these people, which I presume was the BBC fulfilling its duty to be impartial. What one shouldn't conclude from that is that there are a lot of them, because there aren't. They are a very small minority. And I think the king is well aware that he reigns by consent and that his son and his grandson in their time will reign by consent. And it's one reason why he behaves, I think, in a very responsible and restrained way. Now, I have to ask about them because they are the sort of elephant in the room, as it were, of the royal family, the Duke and Duchess of Sussex. Now, we know that Harry is going to attend the coronation, but his wife, Meghan, will not. Was that the correct decision? I think it was. She is a distraction. She clearly doesn't understand the British royal family. She has grown up, it seems, in some sort of cocoon where everything is about her. This is a very rare occasion that's not going to be about her. Of course he should be there because he's the king's son. Even if he doesn't do royal duties, you would expect him to be present at this landmark event in his father's life. And I think it was a very good idea not to bring her. I think had they both come, she would have done all she could to seize the stage and become the centre of attention. And I think it would be very embarrassing. I think after their book, which has now been, or his book, which has been received as a protracted whinge and an exercise in monumental self-pity of the sort that our fellow countrymen and women don't really appreciate, I think if he had come here, he could well have ended up being booed in the street or just ignored with her. As it is, it'll be interesting to see what reception he gets. I'm sure he's got some fans here who will applaud. I think most people would just stand and look at him. Do you think she's a bit jealous of the attention? I don't know. I can't read her mind. She's beyond my comprehension, to be honest with you. Certainly, she is somebody who likes to have lots of attention. And again, the coronation is not all about her. I think she couldn't understand... I think she fundamentally couldn't understand why her husband was deemed under our constitution to be less significant than his brother. Because in ordinary families, all brothers and sisters are the same. But then not all brothers and sisters have a throne to inherit at some stage. And I think it's amazing because most Americans I've known are intelligent people and they get this. They understand that we do things differently from them. I'm not saying we do it better than them, but we do it differently. And they understand how it works. She appears to be utterly incapable of grasping how it works. And I think that's largely because it's not about her. The very nature of hierarchy and an inherent hierarchy is probably anathema to her entire worldview, one suspects, and many people's worldviews. How much of King Charles's reign do you think will be dominated by the Sussexes? I don't think any of King Charles's reign will be dominated by the Sussexes. I think they are in irrelevance. They really are. What about if they keep coming up with accusations and doing podcasts and doing Netflix series and things like this? It's little boy crying wolf, isn't it? Look, the one big effluvium, if you like, that they pumped out last winter of the Netflix series and the book just nauseated people. How much more of it do people want? Most people will be very glad never to set eyes on them again. This, I think, is, I think they've realised this. I think their publicists or their advisers have told them this, which is why she went off the map for months afterwards. 
because she knew it had backfired. When you get self-parked, as I believe the verb is, <laughs> when you get self-parked, you've really made a mess of things. Now, King Charles himself has come under some scrutiny for his decisions over culture war issues. So, obviously, we mentioned in our last interview about the dropping of Lady Susan Hussey, who was accused of racism because she asked someone where they really came from, and this was apparently some sort of racist statement. And, of course, the other thing that's happened more recently is King Charles and the monarchy, uh, the sort of institution, have agreed to investigate the monarchy's links to the slave trade. And this has been a big victory for the Guardian newspaper. So do you think King Charles will be King Charles the Woke or something? I'm glad you say it's a great victory for the Guardian newspaper, which itself was founded on the money of uh, slaver, slavers. Look, I'm concerned that the king has done this for two reasons. I think some of the people he's chosen to do it, if you look up their records, what they've written about this sort of thing, they're only going to come to one conclusion, which is that the royal family of the time, and we're talking, the Royal Africa Company was founded 365 years ago, that the royal family of the time did not, by our present standards, behave well. The British royal family has done so much for the Commonwealth, for the people, in, particularly in the West Indies, who are descended from slaves. I don't think that anybody in his or her right mind can accuse the royal family, certainly not the late Queen or any of the present generation, of being racist. Black people in the Commonwealth have always been treated in modern times as the equals of white people and everybody else, as it should be. And I think the king is trying to overcompensate. I don't know what he's going to do when this report comes in. If this report comes in and says we all behave terribly, what's he going to do? Give Windsor Castle to Barbados? I just, I'm not being flippant. I don't know where we start. I know individuals have given money. Maybe the Crown can offer to do some, some building or some, found some charities in the West Indies. That might be a good idea. Maybe, they de- maybe that's what they deserve. But it's a very dangerous business to get in and start apologising for things that were done centuries before you were born and apologising for things you have not done yourself and you don't agree with yourself and indeed appall you yourself. And this is why I found it so depressing when he was Prime Minister that Tony Blair was always going around apologising for things that were done decades ago or centuries ago. It doesn't make sense. It's not logical. It's not rational. It's purely sentimental. And that isn't to understate the horrors that people went through in those times. Uh, But I'm afraid history is full of really vile and unpleasant things. And that is one vile and unpleasant thing. We did lead the world, actually, in abolishing slavery from 1807 onwards. William Wilberforce did a pretty good job. And he was an Englishman, as far as I remember. And we played our part in ensuring that this iniquity was ended. And I don't know what else there is to apologise for. Quite. And someone like George III, was, he wrote against the slave trade, but, and this was quite progressive for his time. And there have been many monarchs, I think, who, after the 1807 decision, were very, as I said, very progressive on this issue. And it, it's, a, it's an odd one because some people are demanding reparations from the royal family for their links to the slave trade and they, this kind of encompasses a wider debate around Britain's role in, in that. Should the royal family, as you say, be giving money to the Commonwealth and giving, be giving money to these countries or isn't there more sort of a balance sheet where we've, we also scrapped it but we also introduced it, if you see what I mean? Don't forget, we, have a, we still have a significant overseas aid programme 
And it's all very well to say that we behaved abominably and exploited economically these people. Unquestionably we did, I'm not arguing with that. But we have, over recent years, had a really quite substantial overseas aid budget, much of which has gone to countries that were affected by the slave trade. And if you look at the balance sheet of the British Empire, in the end, I'm not sure we made a great deal of money out of it. Maybe some individuals did, but I think the state in general didn't. One reason we were so keen to get out of India from the Great War onwards was because we simply couldn't afford it. We were losing money hand over fist in having to administer such a vast country that was more than capable of administering itself. But there's a broader point, isn't there? Of why do we have to take responsibility for the actions of people hundreds of years ago who are dead? And I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. It's, it, there's also a double standard because there are many people who were involved in the slave trade, including against people in Britain. There was people, white people in Britain who were taken away by the Barbary pirates and things like this. And so many African kings and tribes were involved in enslaving their own people. So why aren't reparations being demanded from them? I agree entirely. It's the activity of African chiefs, aristocrats, if you like, kings, tribal leaders, in assisting the slave trade by supplying people they didn't like the look of and having them sent abroad. That was equally iniquitous. It takes two to trade. People think, I think, that we just went to Africa and rounded people up against their will. They were sold to us. And look, it's an iniquitous trade. I'm not remotely defending it. But it took two to tango, and we do forget that. And of course it's absurd to apologise for things that your forebears did. Look, we are now friends with the Germans. My father and grandfather spent a large part of their youth shooting Germans, or trying to shoot Germans. Should I go and find a German in the street and apologise to him for what went on? It's mad. You can only be responsible for your own actions. You can't be responsible for what people did beforehand. It is nonsense. If you weren't there, if you didn't do it, if it wasn't your motive force that made it happen, you've nothing to apologise for. You can say, I regret that my country did this, but to start taking personal responsibility for it is bonkers. So does King Charles risk alienating certain conservatives part, conservative parts of the country? I would say a lot of the country who say, look, we've had enough of apologising, we've had enough of looking into the slave links. I think it depends what he does in response to this. If he says, I'm going to give a vast amount of my own personal money to a charity in the West Indies to try and make life better for descendants of slaves there, that's his choice. If he starts trying to (laughs) get state money to go there, that's going to cause a lot of difficulties. I don't think he can. Why do you think he is... First of all, do you think he is going too far in this direction? And if so, why? I wouldn't have done it. I think in his role as head of the Commonwealth, it's quite legitimate for him to say, just for a matter of record and for the avoidance of doubt, that he deeply regrets what happened all those centuries ago and dissociates himself and his country from it entirely. Why he feels the need to go further and have an investigation into all this, when we all know what happened anyway, and it's it's not a great chapter in our history, 
Um, I can't see the point. It's like self-flagellation. I think he's doing it because he's bending over backwards to show that he is not a racist and that he and he is conforming with the vogue for identity politics. That vogue, I hope, will pass. And I, well, I do hope that when this thing reports, which I believe is not until 2025 or 2026, he will react in a temperate rather than an intemperate way to, to what, it's, what it concludes. So perhaps it's not just Charles who has been vaguely woke in some ways. Obviously, we know Harry is very woke. But there's maybe one other Windsor who, who you might want to mention who, who perhaps is, is going down this path. I think much of the much of the drive is in the next generation and I think Prince William has to look at his own views of how to right wrongs before doing too much more of it. He disowned his godmother Lady Susan Hussey more or less on the spot without taking account of what she said and what she was trying to say and giving no credit to her for being a thoroughly decent woman who meant no offence at all to the woman she spoke to and who is certainly, there's no evidence of her being a racist. And I thought he's sold her short very rapidly and it was a very bad thing for him to do. But also this is the man who wanted all the ivory in the royal collection to be burned, even though the elephants that it, it, that it came from or the anostrosis it came from were dead hundreds of years ago in many cases. The idea of people going into the royal palaces and smashing up pianos and putting them on the fire because they've got ivory keys is just nonsense or chess sets or other ornaments. And I'm told by someone who says he knows what's going on that the king has said to Prince William, this is not sensible. Let's oppose the ivory trade now. Let's not allow the trafficking of ivory now because it's very bad for the environment in Africa and India. But let's not just pointlessly destroy things that happened years ago. Again, there does seem, it does seem to be a feature of wokeness to try and erase unpleasant bits of history and to continually grovel about them. And we don't get anywhere by doing that. The thing now is how do you behave at the moment, whether it's towards black people or whether it's towards poor old elephants roaming around Africa. It's not what you did in the past. We can't undo that. We can't change it. All we can do is regret it. Let's talk about another coronation controversy. Now, on the, on the invitations to the coronation, there was all these images. I don't know if you saw the invitation, but it was very packed with, with lots of flowers and things like this. And there was this image of the green man. Now, the debates around the green man are interesting. Some people say it's a pagan symbol. Some people say it's a Christian symbol. It's been used in Christian churches for a long time. Do you think it was right that, that King Charles used the pagan green man on this invitation? You say the pagan green man. Is he pagan? Yes, he may have been pagan. But as you say, he was also adopted by the Christian church. Look, you and I are talking in a part of East Anglia that has a number of villages I can think of around here with, a, with pubs called the green man. It's a part of... English iconography, if you like. Why shouldn't he be iconographical about his own country on his coronation invitation? I think it's insane to do it, also to, to oppose it. Also, he is a great environmentalist. He's very close to the earth. You know, this is a man who we're told talks to trees and plants. Good luck to him. If he wants to bring out that side of his character and personality in his, converse, in his coronation invitation, I couldn't care less, to be honest with you. I think good luck to him. 
linking in with this controversy. So basically, you've got Conservatives in the UK who are a bit concerned that Charles is going too far away from Christianity. And he's going too far out, too far to try and represent all faiths. So there's this controversy over defender of the faith, defender of the faiths. Do you think it's right that Charles is trying to represent all of modern Britain, all faiths? We're a multicultural country now. This is quite unique in terms of him becoming king to multicultural Britain. I never know what the word multicultural means. As far as I can see, we're a monocultural society that quite correctly tolerates the expression of the cultures of others. Most people in this country are from what we used to call the indigenous population. I don't know that we yet know exactly what he's going to say in the coronation service. He is defender of the faith by dint of being governor, supreme governor of the Church of England. I think it's quite right that he wants to show respect to other religions. I think religion is generally, although I'm an atheist, I think religion is generally a good thing. I think it helps bring decency and order to society, whether it's Christianity, Hinduism, Judaism, whatever else. And those people, people who practice those faiths, are quite numerous now in our country. And if they wish to live in our country, then we, our king has to represent them. And he's their king as much as he's my king or your king. And I think it's quite in order for him to say that he will protect their right to, to exercise their religious beliefs. Do you think that he is too obsessed with this idea of multicultural Britain, trying to represent everyone? There is an argument to say, actually, if you're proud of our traditional values of Christianity, as you say, he's the head of the Church of England, you, if you show yourself to be culturally... I don't know what the word is, but culturally, as I say, proud of our values and our identity. It's a lot easier for people to integrate into the country. And if you come from other places from around the world, having a country with a proud and strong identity, it's almost easier to come in and, and see that and respect that. Yes, we must have, we must take it easy for people who come here to integrate. And that's why I rather approve of the citizenship ceremonies and, and tests that people have to take now, which of course was not the case in 1953. And... I think it's, you're absolutely right to say that if you make it easy to integrate, then we are more likely to have a peaceful and homogenous society where everybody gets on with everybody else. As to the king's regard for multiculturalism, again, it depends what he thinks he means by multiculturalism. As I say, I may be very eccentric in saying this, but I think I live in a society that is predominantly governed by Christian values. The parliament that rules it still says prayers every afternoon when it meets. The king is supreme governor of the Church of England. I am an atheist, but I accept that and I don't mind it. To me, it seems an entirely harmless and indeed rather good way of regulating things. But he doesn't want to exclude anybody. And I think as monarch, he can't be seen to exclude anybody who is part of the citizenry of his country. That doesn't mean that you put it on an equal footing with the established church or the Christian faith. And it can't be on an equal footing in terms of numbers because there aren't that many people who practice these other religions. But it is important that they are all treated equally and are all allowed to express themselves and to express their religions. And most people do that in a very peaceful and inoffensive way. And I think that's a very good thing. In the Heffer household, there is a word that I imagine is a quite dirty word, and that is modernisation. Do you think that the monarchy should modernise? Do you think that there's too much of a push to modernise? 
What, again, it depends what we mean by modernisation. It's like multiculturalism. People use these words to mean all sorts of different things. I'm a very, I'm a tremendously modern person. I use a computer. I've got a satellite television. I have a mobile telephone. These things are all very modern. If you mean by that, if you mean by modernising that the monarchy perhaps should be less rigid and less formal, there may be something to be said for that. I think it's a generational thing. The late Queen grew up in an era where there was great formality and her father became king in very difficult circumstances after the abdication of his brother. And I think it was very important to emphasise in those years before the war his own personal dignity as monarch. And I think she learned a lot from that and from her grandfather. But our king is of a different generation. He lives in a different society. It's a less deferential society, which is probably a good thing. And I think that if he behaves in a less rigid and formal way than his mother, that's no bad thing. I think also, by the way, he's encouraged to do so by Queen Camilla, who is a very relaxed, easygoing, outgoing, gregarious person, very good with people. And I've, I don't doubt that in the 18 years they've been married, he's gone on engagements with her, and they've seen, he's seen how well she operates with the general public, and maybe he's learned something from it that you can relax. Everybody who I know who knows the king well says to me he really does care about people, he really is interested in people. And I think that's absolutely true. You've only got to see all the work he did for the Prince's Trust to help disadvantaged young people. He's very interested in young people because they're about the future of this country. You've only got to look at that and look at the care he takes when he goes abroad, not just with people from the Commonwealth, people from other countries. And again, I refer to his brilliant performance in Germany. There's a lot to be said just for getting on with people and taking an interest in them, not standing too much on your dignity, not standing too much on ceremony. There has to be a certain amount of dignity and a certain amount of ceremony because he is head of state. Nobody wants their head of state to be a tramp, if you like, and he certainly isn't. Shall we just briefly talk about Queen Camilla? Because this coronation ceremony is a chance for Britain to really see this new queen and to show her off. And this is a good chance for perhaps for her to almost relaunch herself in the eyes of Brits because she had a very tough time in the media throughout with the Princess Diana controversy and everything else. And perhaps this is a good opportunity to, for a sort of clean break and a fresh start. I don't think she needs a clean break or a fresh start. And she does need a relaunch. I think that happened years ago. I think the public worked out pretty quickly after she married the then Prince of Wales that she was actually a rather good person and a good sort and she's done a hell of a lot of work for this country and for the monarchy since then and goes down universally really well wherever she goes. She had a very good pandemic if you can have such a thing. She was visible. Of course the king got Covid and she became the public face of him for that period and they obeyed all the rules and regulations that the rest of us had to obey, and that, of course, the Prime Minister at the time decided not to obey. And I think won a great deal of respect and regard for that. She set up this thing called the Queen's Reading Room, as it's now known, to get people in lockdown to start reading books. And that's an ongoing project. That's going to continue for years to come. And so she doesn't need a relaunch. She's established herself. There was a lot of sentimentality about the late Princess of Wales. People who you know, understood in anybody else that marriages go wrong refused to accept it in the case of this marriage. 
I'm not saying that the then Prince of Wales behaved brilliantly, he probably didn't. But it's over, it's in the past. It's another of those things that we just need to put behind us. And I think as a society, we have put it behind us. I think she has long been accepted, long been welcomed, and it's quite the right thing to do because she is very good at what she does. Talking about things that we might want to put behind us. Now, we mentioned again in, in the first interview we did on the monarchy about Mr Enoch Powell, one of those fantastic conservative figures from the 20th century. And he was very much against the Commonwealth. And there's been more contemporary arguments surrounding King Charles's role with the Commonwealth from certain groups of conservatives who say that King Charles should act more as a Scandinavian king more as a provincial king. He should focus on Britain, he should focus on the environment, he should focus on his fantastic campaigns and architecture and everything else. But the Commonwealth, it's time to put it behind us, it's time to focus on ourselves, put the empire away, and it's time to really put Britain at the heart of it, at the heart of the monarchy. Okay, well, as you know, I was Enoch Powell's official biographer, so I discussed this with him in in great depth. And Enoch's view was that the Commonwealth was a sort of comfort blanket to which we could huddle in to recover from the fact that we'd lost an empire. And he just saw it as a pointless act of sentimentality. I think he was slightly wrong about that. We do have links of blood and history with many countries around the world because our king, our queen at different times, either still does reign over them or did reign over them. And there are links of language, there are links of culture, and it makes sense to keep them going. The king himself, I think, said at the Commonwealth Day service this year that we're all bound together by shared values. I think that's true. And I think the king sincerely believes that the Commonwealth does a lot of good in the world, and I think he's right about that. As with the fact he reigns by consent, he's head of the Commonwealth by consent. And if the Commonwealth suddenly has a heads of government meeting where they decide they've had enough of him and they want to form their own club and call it something different, that's entirely up to them. And there's nothing he can do to stop it as a constitutional monarch. So I don't think he needs to abandon them. I think he believes in it very strongly, not least because he sees it as a great legacy of his late mother. And I think it's absolutely fine for him to carry on until such time, if it comes, that they say, we're not interested. They may, when the time comes, when he dies, say to King William, well, actually, we're still going to have a Commonwealth, but we don't see why you or maybe your family should be in charge of it. We've got a perfectly good retired president of Kenya or, or Barbados who could do the job just as well, and that's their prerogative. But inevitably, because he is based in the United Kingdom and this is the origin of that association, he will be giving much more attention to what goes on here than he will abroad. But there's nothing wrong with the Commonwealth inherently, and there's nothing wrong with him playing the role he plays in it. We live in a very unstable world. Horrible things have been happening in the last 18 months in Europe, particularly, obviously, the Russian-Ukraine war. There's a lot of instability and rivalry. We've got individual countries cracking up. Look what's happening in France at the moment. Look at the divisions and polarity in America, which is quite terrifying, given that they are our main ally. I think any international body that pulls together and actually gets on well with each other is a good thing. And that's what the Commonwealth is and does at the moment. And I think the King is a very valuable and intrinsically important part of that. Do world leaders respect Charles? Unquestionably. He's known most of them for years. He's known most of them since they were relatively junior politicians in their own countries. 
because he's visited these places so much. He may only, I think, have made eight or nine official visits to France, but he's been to France about 40 times. He's been to Germany 40 or 50 times. So he knows these people and knows them well. And when they see him, they know that he's had a long apprenticeship. They know he's been at the highest echelons of public life for longer than many of them have been alive. So they do respect him and they do like him. And he is a very good diplomat. He has never done anything to disoblige any foreign country or to make himself disagreeable to them. Do you think that with the massive interest in places like Germany and France in the monarchy and in the coronation, that they're a bit jealous of our king? I can imagine hundreds of thousands of Germans today desperate for their Kaiser back or want it, the French trying to restore someone to, to their fantastic role of the emperor or something. If the Germans want to put the Hohenzollerns back on the throne, that's up to them. That's their prerogative. The Hohenzollerns there, I'm sure they'd be willing to help. I'm sure the Habsburgs would be willing to go and sit back on the Holy Roman Imperial throne in Vienna. Charles could be the elector of Hanover again. Charles could be the elector of Hanover. I think there is one, actually. I think because of Salic law, it went, through, it, it went down a male line and knocked through Queen Victoria into the female line. So, yes, I think there are three different pretenders to the French throne. There's, a, there's an Orléanist, Bourbon and a Bonapartist. And they can have a fight between themselves about which one does it. I happen to think monarchy is a good way of running things because of all the old arguments, stability, continuity, sense of duty, sense of service, sense of example, being above politics. And I don't know who we replace the king with as head of state. People say David Attenborough. I wish him the longest possible life, but he is 96, I think nearly 97. He might not be around very much longer with the best will in the world. And I don't know who we'd find, but it would be some superannuated politician, I imagine, who most people would find detestable. Have you ever been tempted by republicanism yourself? I've never felt the slightest temptation to republicanism, partly because I've been writing about politics now for nearly 40 years. And while I've met some very admirable politicians, I've met many more unadmirable ones. And I just don't think it would be any better. I think having a political head of state would not necessarily solve any of our problems. I don't think it would be any cheaper. I don't think it would get us any more respect in the world. It wouldn't improve our democracy. It wouldn't strengthen our rule of law. What's the point? What's the point? I can see that people who are motivated to be Republicans in this country are generally motivated by a sense of anti-elitism, anti-hierarchism. I don't share those things, really. I'm quite happy with the idea of elites and hierarchies. I think most Conservatives are. And that's not to say that there can be no social mobility. We're all condemned to stay where we were born. But I think in a society that offers as much opportunity as ours, there isn't any problem with the monarchy. If anybody wants to serve their country at a high level, they can become prime minister. And they really do have the power. The king has no power. The king is a figurehead. He's a symbol of our nation. But I think it is good that there's a check and balance on a prime minister. And I wish I could live long enough, I won't, to read all the papers of the late queen and see some of the notes that she might or might not have made about her relationship with Boris Johnson and some of her other prime ministers, because I think that would be interesting. I, I often wonder whether she ever told Boris Johnson to behave himself, because she would have had absolutely every right to do constitutionally and morally. And I think it's good for there to be some check and balance on 
absolute power. And when you see things that have gone wrong in recent years in France, in America, where the role of head of state and head of government are combined, it's fatal. I hope if we ever do have a republic, we never combine the roles of head of state and head of government. But someone has, is yet to make a powerful case why the unelected head of state in a republic would be a superior form of government and leadership to the one we have at the moment. Thank you very much, Simon, for joining us. Thank you for asking me. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this show and are interested in hearing more episodes like it, please follow this podcast and drop us a review. If you have any suggestions of people you would like to be interviewed, you can let us know via the Apple Podcasts app. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.